Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, as well as our friends at Purpose Church, Kalispell, Montana, and also our friends at First Baptist Church, Arco, Idaho. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us today for our study of God's Word. We're going through the seven churches of Revelation. And basically what's happening here is that Jesus is giving a performance review to seven churches. Now, how many of you ever have to receive a performance review at work or give a performance review at work? How many of you have to do that? Can you imagine how intimidating it would be to have Jesus give our church a performance uh, review? Let's show the map up there. and You'll see that Jesus speaks to the churches clockwise like this from Ephesus till uh, Laodicea. Pastor Eric did a brilliant message a few weeks ago. I encourage you to go online and listen to it about Ephesus. I did Smyrna last Sunday, and today we do Pergamum. Pergamum for you. Got any USC fans, any Trojans out there? Pergamum is just two miles uh, from the original site of Troy. So Pergamum uh, that we're talking about today was right there uh, next to Troy. Now, two of the churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, Jesus had nothing but good on their performance review. He, he praises them, and then he says, frankly, when it comes to anything to work on, I can't think of a thing. How awesome would that be? You probably were in the next category. The other five churches, he followed this pattern, and this is a great pattern. If you ever have to give a performance review, follow the pattern of Jesus. He encourages them, then he challenges them, then he encourages them one more time. And that's what we're going to see with regard to the church at Pergamum uh, here, here this morning. Seven churches. Uh, today, the church of Pergamum, the church that compromised the truth. Uh, Romans 12, verse 2 is kind of our theme verse. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So let's dig into Pergamum, Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. First of all, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, if Ephesus was the New York City of ancient Turkey, because really these seven churches are in what is today the nation of Turkey. Uh, back then, we, we call it ancient Turkey, or it was the uh, Roman province called Asia. So Turkey back then was called Asia, the Roman province of the Roman Empire of Asia. So if Ephesus was the New York City of ancient Turkey, then Pergamum was the Washington, D.C., because it was the first capital of the Roman province of Asia. It had the world's second biggest library with 200,000 volumes, second only to the library in Alexandria, Egypt. And I know we have a lot of our Egyptian friends at this service, so they would want me to know Egypt was number one, Pergamum was number two. Now, this is a funny story from history. They tried to become number one. Pergamum tried to build a library bigger than Alexandria, but you know what the Egyptians did? They cut off Pergamum's supply of papyrus. They cut off their papyrus supply, and so they couldn't beat them. But the, what they did is, in Pergamum, they developed a new method of writing on animal skins instead of on papyrus, and it was called parchment, which is our English word today, which is from the Greek word Pergamum. So our word today, parchment, comes from the Greek word for Pergamum because that's where they developed this method of writing. Uh, they were also called the lords of the, uh, the, of the ancient world, L-O-U-R-D-E-S, like lords of France, uh, where people go to lords in order to receive a, a medicinal healing. Well, Pergamum was the first to erect a temple to the serpent god Asclepius, who was the god of healing 
And so the rod of Asclepius is a symbol for medicine, mainly outside the United States. Here in the United States, the symbol for medicine, I think, is two snakes uh, on a rod. But outside the United States, this is the primary symbol, the rod of Asclepius. And here's how you would get your medical help at Pergamum. Oh, man, I hate this. You would go to the temple of Asclepius. You would lay down on the floor and let snakes crawl over you. And that's how you would supposedly be healed. Now, I have this thing called white coat syndrome, all right? When I go to my doctor, my blood pressure goes through the roof. And my doctors learned this about me. And so at the end of the time, after nothing terrible he's had to tell me, then I calm down a little bit. And then he takes my blood pressure, and I'm just fine. Uh, but my, I have white coat syndrome. Well, can you imagine if you got your blood pressure taken with snakes crawling over you in that doctor's office. That, that would not be white coat syndrome. That would be serpent syndrome if I was uh, having my blood pressure taken then. Uh, Jesus says here, back to that verse, he says, I am the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now, um, the double-edged sword was the Roman symbol of authority. So basically what Jesus is saying here is, uh, I'm your authority, not the Roman Empire. I'm the double-edged sword. I'm the authority of your life if you're a citizen of heaven and a follower of Christ. Then he says in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So let's, let's take this apart, part by part. First of all, he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. We believe probably this is referring to the altar of Zeus that was on a mountain overlooking the city. Here's an artist's rendition of what Pergamum may have looked like with this giant temple to Zeus on the Acropolis, the mountain overlooking the city of Pergamum. Here's a replica of what that temple of Zeus, that altar of Zeus, uh, would have looked like. Now he says at the beginning of the verse, back to the verse, I know where you live. And this is so cool what Chuck Swindoll writes here. I, this is just awesome. Uh, this is totally random. I'm just reading the Bible commentary by Chuck Swindoll. He says in verse 13, uh, the Greek word for live is katoikeo, which implies a permanent residence or a commitment to stay. So he's saying here, I know where you have a commitment to stay. Even though Pergamum was characterized as the seat of Satan's authority, the church didn't try to escape the extreme pressures they chose to endure. Now, this is what Chuck Swindoll, not my words, his. To use a modern analogy, while everybody else was moving to the suburbs, the church in Pergamum stayed in the inner city, no matter how bad it became. Who does that sound like? Even today, Certain places are especially tough for Christians to live in, both in our country and around the world, yet those who remain steadfast are faithful witnesses. Anybody want to say amen to that? Now, hey, let's not be negative. Pomona is on the comeback, baby. Um, Fuller's moving to town. Just last week, I was talking to Ray Adermack, who's, uh, who's renovating the YMCA, and he's just telling me about all these other developers that are coming to Pomona. It, it, is, it is on the roll, baby. As a matter of fact, this is how good it gets in Pomona. A couple of days ago, NASA introduced their nine astronauts. They're going to be the new astronauts into space, and one of the nine was born in Pomona, California. Yeah. So one-ninth of the astronauts from our nation came from our city. That's where they came from. Now, it says here Antipas. This Antipas, we don't know anything else about him. Don't know anything else about him. 
except what we read here, that he was put to death for following Jesus in the city of Pergamum. But we do know the Greek meaning of his name. His name means against all. all right? Boy, that was a prophetic name his parents gave him. Against all. He stood against all cultural pressures in Pergamum, even to the point of them taking his life. He remained faithful to the cause of Christ. I can't wait to meet him in heaven. You know, never heard of him hardly at all. Don't know anything about him. But man, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to shaking his hand. Uh, verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Don't you hate that part in the job review where they tell you all the nice things and say, however, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. So there were two things that these Balaamites were, were doing within the church, two areas where they were compromising. They were worshiping idols. They were worshiping Jesus, but idols at the same time. So they were compromising their loyalty to God. And they were engaged in sexual immorality. They were compromising their morality. They were saying, yes, I'm following Jesus, but then they weren't following uh, the sexual morality that is taught uh, within God's word. It also says in verse 15, he says, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, not the Nickelodeons. Everybody's like, whoa, can't let my kids watch that anymore. No, 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 the, the, the Nicolaitans. And we actually don't know anything about them. We know very little about them in, in history. We just assume that like the Balaamites, uh, they were promoting idol worship, uh, syncretism, uh, worshiping God and idols at the same time, and also uh, sexual immorality. Then he says in verse 16, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He says, you got to repent uh, of this. Uh, we've seen with the three churches we've looked at so far, three of the main things that kill churches. And I think this is like a perfect series preparing for our 150th anniversary. You know, it's today, I'm so grateful and, and so fun to celebrate our being here for 25 years. But I'm telling you, the big bash is coming in a couple of years. 150th anniversary in the year 2020. That is going to be awesome. Just can't wait for that. We are going to party all year long uh, for that 150th anniversary. And I think this is a good preparation. Hey, let's, let's get the best job review from Jesus uh, that we can by our 150th. Does that sound like a good idea? So this series is like perfect. So we've learned three of the main things that kill churches. The first one in the church of Ephesus that Eric preached on is losing your first love. Losing your first love will kill a church. I think particularly losing your love for the lost. You know, one of the advantages of growing older is you can look over and you can see certain patterns in churches and tens of thousands of churches close all across America every year. And praise God, new ones are started, but many close their doors. And I don't want to be judgmental. There could be a thousand reasons why that happened. But I tell you, one of the main reasons is they lose their first love for the lost. It becomes all about us and our four walls instead of the church being the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. That's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be outreach-oriented. We're supposed to be reaching the next generation. And I tell you, I know many of you have gone through hard stuff as we've gone through changes to continue to reach the newer generations. But you know what the alternative is? And this is going to sound so snarky, and I don't mean this to be judgmental. Forgive me, but some of your friends' churches are closing their doors. And the reason is 
because they, they haven't done the changes to reach the next generation. Well, I'm not, now I'm really going to go off on a tangent. I, my dad was an awesome church leader. He was a businessman, uh, owner of a, president of a lumber company, but he was like the lead elder in my home Presbyterian church. And I remember right about the time I started off as a pastor, uh, I was telling him about the musical changes we were doing to, to incorporate praise music in the church and not just hymns. And my dad was always the head of the search committee, and he, man, he found some awesome pastors. I mean, our little church in Hopewell, Virginia, had some of the best pastors in the nation. My dad was great at finding them. But he wasn't great at everything. And I remember he was on the search committee for a music pastor. And I remember my dad saying to me one day, you know what, I'm so proud of this new music pastor we just hired. He promised us that he would never allow any of that new music to come into the church. And I said, Dad, I am just a young, stupid kid. But I'm telling you, you may regret that someday. And that thriving church that I grew up in of about 1,000 people is now about 50 people and two kids in the nursery is about it. And I'm telling you, churches that aren't willing to love the next generation, aren't willing to love the lost enough, lose that first love, and are unwilling to change, they die like the church at Ephesus. Uh, other ones like Smyrna just go through so much suffering, and oh, our hearts go out to them. There are churches around the world that just get persecuted so hard, like the church at Smyrna, that they disappear. The church in Turkey has, for the most part, disappeared because of persecution in the nation of Turkey. And then, what we look at in Pergamum is compromising the truth. You see churches that make little compromises of the truth here that eventually become big compromises over time, and eventually they close their doors because they have compromised the truth of God's word. Verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Hidden manna. Uh, the heavenly food available to the believer who overcomes. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. A white stone. It was common in Pergamum for big special banquets to use a white stone as a ticket for admission. So there'd be this big fancy banquet. And the only ones that got in were those that had a white stone which served as a ticket. And you'd hand the person your white stone at the, at the door and they'd say, come on in. You're welcome at the banquet. And that's what Jesus does for us when we receive him as our Lord and Savior. You know, today, before you go home, if you're watching online, before this day is over, you can get your white stone from Jesus. You just got to open up your heart and receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And you say, Glenn, I'd love to do that. Well, if you look right in front of you in the book rack, you're going to see a card that says resource on it, how to become a follower of Jesus. And I encourage you, just take this and take it home with you and pray about it this afternoon or, or take it to the prayer room after the service is over and somebody will go through this with you and pray with you. And there are steps that the Bible talks about and then there's a little suggested prayer there. And if you pray that prayer and open up your heart and receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, he will give you a white stone. And someday when you die and you walk to the gates of heaven, you will hand the gatekeeper that white stone and he will say, come on in. The banquet is ready for you. What a great day that will be. So he says, I'll give you hidden manna. I'll give you a white stone with a new name written on it. 
Uh, this new name will talk about your transformed nature in Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new person. Old things have passed away. Behold, the, the new has come. And you'll see that pattern in Scripture that when God starts working in a person's life, he often gives them a new name. And so Jacob the schemer becomes Israel, the prince of God. Abram becomes Abraham. And you'll see this pattern throughout Scripture. And so I just can't wait to see what my new name is. My new name will not be Glenn Kermit like it is now. It will be Man of Thunder. Or I don't know. I Pick something awesome, you know. Come on, Lord. If I've suffered with Kermit my whole life, you got to give me something cool. you got to give me a cool uh, new name uh, when, when I get to heaven. Now, with the remaining time that we have, I want to talk about compromise. Uh, compromise can be a good word or a bad word. There's a time to compromise and a time to not compromise. Uh, remember we've used the illustration of when Christ comes into your life, it's like he gets into your car and you give him the steering wheel and you sit in the passenger seat. And we did that whole series on the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about how you lose the filling of the Holy Spirit is when you take the steering wheel back from Jesus. You know that bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot? Not a great bumper sticker. He's supposed to be our pilot, not our co-pilot. Get him behind the wheel, drive it in the right direction. And so maybe sometimes on a daily basis, you have to repent and say, God, forgive me, I took the wheel back again. Get back behind the wheel. I'm going in the wrong direction when I drive it. Or I'm causing a wreck. Or I flip the car over, you know. Jesus, you, you take the wheel, as Carrie Underwood would tell us. Jesus, uh, take, take the wheel, man. And so that's really, I never thought of that. How to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Obey the words of Carrie Underwood in her song, <laughs> Jesus Take the Wheel. And then your oikos is the 8 to 15, the Greek word for household and your sphere of influence. And those are the ones outside the car that you're trying to reach for Christ and bring into the car. And so your assignment from God is to go to heaven and to take your oikos with you. But then there's the people in the back seat of your car. And those are the fellow Christians who you journey with through life. And sometimes we are not careful enough by who we connect ourselves with. We make compromises, like the church at Pergamum had done. They, they said, man, these people that worship you know, the idols and worship Jesus, they're such nice people. Uh, these people that you know, have sexual immorality in their lives, we love them, they're great people. So you know what, we, we, we can ride together in this journey of life. So sometimes we're not careful enough, but sometimes we're too careful. And we're too judgmental. And sometimes we are too much, we elevate non-important things to essential status. And we divide ourselves as Christians because of that. And so sometimes we're too care, we're not careful enough with who we pick up in our car and, and connect with. And sometimes we're not careful enough. Uh, I picked up a hitchhiker the other day. Seemed like a nice guy. After a few miles, I asked him if he wasn't afraid that I might be a serial killer. He said that the odds of two serial killers being in the same car was extremely unlikely. <laughs> I love that joke so much. But sometimes we're too careful. Sometimes not careful enough. Sometimes we're too careful. The story is told of a man who was driving home late one night when he picked up a hitchhiker. As they rode along, he began to be suspicious of his passenger. The man checked to see if his wallet was safe in the pocket of his coat that was on the seat between them, but it wasn't there. So he slammed on the brakes, ordered the 
hitchhiker to get out of his car, hand over the wallet right now, and he even said a few other choice words. The frightened hitchhiker handed over a billfold, and the man drove off still mad as a hornet. When he arrived home, he started to tell his wife about what happened on the way home. But she interrupted him and said, before you tell me your story, do you know that you left your wallet at home this morning? Just think about it for a while. It'll, uh, it, it'll come. So the wallet he had taken was the other guy's wallet. You know, sometimes we have blind spots. And we think, I'm not going to fellowship with that Christian because they do this and this and this. And we have blind spots about we do this and this and this. So sometimes we're not careful enough. But, but sometimes we're too careful. You say, Glenn, how can you tell the difference? This, this statement is something that has guided us here at Purpose Church. It's from antiquity. We don't know who said it. We think maybe Augustine who was a pastor in 400 A.D., but we're, we're really not that sure. But it's so powerful, and we live by it here at Purpose Church. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. In the essentials of the faith, that is the things that are clearly taught in God's Word. Death of Jesus for our sins on the cross. His resurrection, His second coming. Matters of salvation. We need to have unity as, as a church. We will never, at Purpose Church, compromise these essentials. Anybody want to say amen to that? Never compromise. But then the non-essentials, and that doesn't mean they're not important. It's important to have conviction on a wide range of things in the Christian life. But it's just that they're not clear in the Bible. So sincere Christians can disagree on these, and it's okay. We can still be together in the same church. So in those things, we have liberty, and the thing that makes it all work is love or charity. So there is wise compromise, and wise compromise is on the non-essentials. You see this at the Council of Jerusalem. First church meeting that ever met was to decide whether non-Jewish people had to become Jews before they became Christians and follow the Jewish law. And so James, the brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the early church, here's the conclusion he came up with. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I love that verse. You know, sometimes churches die because they raise non-essentials to the level of essentials. And they make it hard for people to turn to God. So let's not make it unnecessarily hard. Let's stick to the essentials. And then in the next verse, he gives them five total things, one inferred, four that are stated. Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols. Now, idol worship, that was an essential, but eating food that had been offered to an idol, that was something the Christians could disagree on. From sexual immorality, that's an essential. From the meat of strangled animals, non-essential. And from blood, non-essential. These are just things, he said, you know what? Let's, let's be unified on the essentials. Don't worship idols and don't engage in sexual immorality. That's what got the church in Pergamum in trouble. But he said, on the other stuff, we can have liberty. You don't have to exercise all of your rights. You can, out of love, give up certain things that you are free to do because you love another Christian and you know it's just going to cause disunity. And for these Jewish Christians, th this stuff was just hard for them. He goes on in the next verse and says, for Moses, has the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times. These Jewish Christians, man, it just would be tough for them to be in church and to see people eating food that have been offered to idols. And the others were like, hey, what's the big deal? So they say mumbo-jumbo in front of a hunk of stone. And then eat it. It's discount meat in the market. 
And it just killed the Jewish Christians. So he says, look, look, on the essentials, let's see be unified. No sexual immorality, no worshiping idols. But on the other stuff, let's voluntarily give up some of this. Let's compromise on it out of love for each other in the body of Christ. That's wise compromise. But then there's worldly compromise, and this is what got Pergamum in trouble. I love this. It's a Russian parable. Russian parable. A hunter raised his rifle and took careful aim at a large bear. When the hunter was about to pull the trigger, the bear spoke in a soft, soothing voice. Isn't it better to talk than to shoot? What do you want? Let's negotiate the matter. Lowering his rifle, the hunter replied, I want a fur coat. Good, said the bear. I only want a full stomach. Let's negotiate. They sat down to talk, and after a short time, the bear walked away alone. The negotiations had been successful. The bear had a full stomach, and the hunter had his fur coat. <laughs> and, and that's the way compromise goes. Uh, you can read the story of Balaam on your own. I really, um, uh, you know, let's, um, uh, let's have the worship team come up. I really want to close with some worship. But if you read the story of Balaam, let me tell it to you quick. Uh, Balak was the king of Moab. And he was afraid of the Israelite army. So he called on Balaam, who was kind of a fortune teller. And he wanted Balaam to put a curse on the nation of Israel so that he could defeat them in war. So kind of a frontal assault, victory over them in war because Balaam puts a, a, a curse on him. Um, every time Balaam went to put a curse on him, God told him he couldn't do it. And he ends up blessing Israel instead of cursing him. And, and Balak is infuriated. He says, I was going to give you a ton of money. And Balaam wanted the money. He wanted the money. But God wouldn't let him get the money because he wouldn't let him curse Israel. Bless him, it's dead. But then, as you go to chapter 25, it says here, you know, let's just go to it. It's easier to read it. When Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. So what they couldn't do, kicking down the front door, Satan had them do in the back door. They, they, they want to have sex with these Moabite women who then invite them to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So they compromised on the same two areas as the people of Pergamum. Idol worship and sexual immorality. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. They let Baal worshipers into the back seat of their car to go with them through the journey. And the Lord's anger burned against them. Where'd they get this idea? Where'd they get this idea? Numbers 31, verse 16. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice. Balaam said, King, would you still pay me if I don't curse the Israelites, but I just give you some good advice? He says, okay, if it works. He says, look, have your women go. And, 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 and entice the Israelite men. And once they have sex, say, hey, let's go and worship my idols. And you'll get the same result. Okay? So do I get the money if I get the same result? He goes, deal. And entice the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. And that's the way compromise is. It's sneaky. Uh, how many of you have ever been to Yellowstone National Park? Anybody been to Yellowstone? It is Kimberly and my favorite place on the planet. Our favorite place on planet Earth is Yellowstone. And here's something I just learned about Yellowstone a, a couple of days ago. In Yellowstone is Isa Lake. And this lake in Yellowstone 
straddles the continental divide. So it's the only lake in the world that has water from the same lake flow to two different oceans. The, the lake looks the same. The water all looks the same, doesn't it? But the water on the eastern end eventually flows into the Atlantic Ocean. And the water on the western end of the lake eventually flows into the Pacific Ocean. Little compromises. Something's going on underneath the surface. Can't even see it. But those little compromises of the truth eventually end up oceans apart. And so by the grace of God, we're praying, Lord, please help us at Purpose Church to rediscover our first love like the church at Ephesus was challenged to do. Help us to endure despite suffering in our lives like the church at Smyrna. And oh God, help us to compromise on the non-essentials so that we will have unity as a church. But oh Lord, help us as a church never, ever compromise on the truth of God's word until Jesus returns. And all God's family said, amen. Woo! Let's stand up. Let's worship a little bit. Let's stand together.